It's the Misdeeds and Intrigue podcast, featuring stories of royals, scandals, and true crime. Here are your hosts, Carrie and Larissa. Hey, 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 thanks for joining us. Real quick promise, please find us and follow us at Mistreague Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We have curated content on Pinterest and Flipboard. Check out our channels on TikTok and YouTube, and if you would be so kind, like that famous prince we all know, please show us some love and rate and review us. Positive vibes only, right? But first... Champagne. Hey, it's Carrie. I wanted to preface this episode with a real quick disclaimer. Larissa and I had recorded a story that is about to follow, but my vocals kind of sucked. So we used a prior episode of the same topic with Shannon of Crime Anxiety Podcast instead when the show was under a previous title. I did try to take the breathiness out, by the way. So I hope you enjoy and stick around for more misdeeds. I think maybe we should do this every day. I have to say, I hate my obsession of disaster porn. I don't know what has caused this, but if there's avalanches, landslides, or, I mean, it's not that I enjoy it. It's just that I'm fascinated. and I'm like, how did they survive? How do people survive in that? And I'm, I'm, I'm worst case scenario girl, right? So I'm always trying to figure out how people survive these things. And it's... Hi, Shannon. Hi, Carrie. How are you? Very good. How have you been? (laughs) Since we last talked, so much has gone wrong. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm doing good. I thought it was really interesting that you picked this topic for us to do today. Because I know I it's not the most enlightening. <laughs> I know it's not one that is super interesting, but you did see the photo, right? Oh, the photo. Um, oh, that's right. I did pick it. I was like, what are you talking about? That's right. You sent me three and I picked. You're right. Yeah, the photos are haunting. It's it's very it's really surreal sad. to see anybody, much less a child, right before they're dying. I mean, it's just very upsetting. Very, very upsetting. So what we're talking about today is about this girl who's 13, but she looks much younger, mm-hmm. who was trapped during, I guess you would call it like a mudslide right, right. from a volcano, mm-hmm. and it ultimately killed like 23,000 people, but she's in her village, and when we get to the part, I'll explain how her body was pinned, right. but she's pinned, and you see her from the waist up and she's lucid and all that. But basically by the end of 60 hours later, Mm -hmm. the doctors thought it would be more humane for her to die. Right. And so there was a journalist that happened to be there and he was interviewing her and talking to her and he took a photo and it won, I think that year it won like a major photography award. But when you look at the picture, it's so haunting. Her Mm -hmm. eyes are almost black. Mm Mm-hmm. And her hands are very whitened, and yeah. her and her face has swelled, and it's just the, it's just the saddest, most haunting picture. It really is. On November thirteenth, nineteen eighty five, a highly active volcano in Colombia erupted. The glacier snow and ice melted as a result, and caused mud and debris to flow down the mountain into the villages at its base. The volcano is approximately eighty miles west of the country's capital city, but appropriate. Help 
medical attention and disaster relief couldn't be found in the days that followed. So basically what happens is volcanic debris mixed with the ice, mm-hmm. and it caused a volcanic mudslide of these debris and ash and all that. So Amaya, Amira, do you know how to say that? Amai? I think it's Amira. Okay, Sanchez was a 13-year-old girl who lived in the village of... Um, do you want to take this one? <laughs> no. No, Ar- Armero. Uh, that's the only yeah. one. That's what it looks like. Yeah. So at the volcano's base, which was 100 miles from Columbia's capital city. So Amira was lucid and trapped in a pool of water for 60 hours before she died. And she was surrounded by people who talked to her, fed her sweets, sang songs, and tried to save her those three days. So rescuers freed her from the waist up. And what they did is they put a tire around her waist so it would avoid her getting sinking any lower or for her to avoid drowning. Mm-hmm. And But her legs were entangled in the arms of her dead aunt and pinned beneath a brick door underneath the water. Her legs were basically pinned beneath the debris of the house. And literally, she was almost standing or sitting like on her aunt's arms wow. underneath the water because they had divers that came in and looked. But her father and her aunt died in the house. And her legs had been trapped under this kind of, I guess, roof. She was almost in a kneeling position. Right. So think of bricks and then her aunt all wrapped around her legs, <sighs> if that makes the most sense. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I really need to understand because I'm like, why couldn't she be saved? Right. Why couldn't you get her legs freed? I really, exactly. I st- and I still don't understand. I guess you had to be there right? to really understand because- it. It's not, it's not, we're not living in the 1800s. They were able to bring divers in to actually look. Right. So um, the rescuers freed her from the waist up. And, but her, I said before her legs were entangled in the arms of her aunt and then workers tried to save her life, but they couldn't remove her without breaking or amputating her legs, which wouldn't work since they didn't have medical supplies to do either and couldn't remove the water around her. But the journalist got in. No hate against the journalist because they're a yeah. lot of times the ones to get the plate out right, to right. get support. But each time they tried to save her, the workers caused the water to rise around her. And during that time, she sang, um, she was very positive. So she sang a song called the Germ- Germaine Santa Maria Berrigan. She yeah. would sing this song. And on like the third night, she began hallucinating, saying she didn't want to be late for school. Oh. And she, yeah, and a a photographer came with her, and towards the end of her life, she knew that she was going to die, but she agreed to to be interviewed, but she would just ask for sweet food, and she drank soda, and for the most part, she was in very good spirits until she, again, you know, started to hallucinate. Right. And in a newspaper article from November 18th, 1985, it said a reporter rushed back to the capital city and searched for a pump to drain the water around her for two days but returned too late i know in the final hours of omira's life she realized she was going to die an article on medium.com said she said goodbye to her mother who survived and asked workers to let her rest i know that makes me very sad gangrene and hypothermia overtook the girl and uh so two days in, that's when she started to host. So for like the right. last two days, she was right. in and out. And the controversy arose when video and photographs of the girl's shoulder deep in water and still alive were broadcast and printed on the world's news outlets, which I fe- feel like would be an issue. I have an issue yeah. just looking back at the photo yeah. and saying, why didn't this girl live? Yeah. Yeah. 
So, uh, okay, this is where I'm not understanding. It said he didn't release the photos till later, um, th- but the controversy was saying that if video and photographs were able to be broadcast, but what I'm getting from it is that those were not broadcast till later. He just took them while he was there, and that's not the same yeah. technology as to what it would take. He had his equipment with him. That wasn't any kind of life-saving equipment. So, you know yeah. what I'm saying? So it's like yep. that line of ethical... You know, but maybe he just really wanted to have her story told. Maybe he was just in as much shock that this yeah. is actually happening. She's actually going to die. And we can do nothing about it. And that's why he documented it. Yeah. And he's there for three days with her. Like, how does yeah. this not have a happy ending? How is this not yeah. Jessica in the well? Or, yeah. yeah. Or why is this particular? I would have literally, if I had been there, uh, I would have just kept holding out hope even till the very end even when the doctors were like it's just better to let her go and more humane because if we amputate her legs she could still get disease and we don't have the services here to take care of her that's so upsetting well oh are you done with your part yeah yeah i am (laughs) sorry this is gonna be a pretty short episode yeah i lost uh where we were because it's just such a it's such a sad story. And I know. And it's like heart. hard to explain yeah. because you're, we're basically drawing the story behind the photograph. Right. But the fact is, is that a little girl was completely lucid and healthy other than being pinned by her legs. Right. Waist up for three days mm-hmm. and she could not be saved. That just blows my mind. I mean, you're just thinking all the things like why couldn't helicopters with some things yep. come in or something, anything. Yeah. I don't know. Many people questioned how technology used to capture and record the agonizing three days was able to reach her, but technology and resources that could save her life were nowhere to be found. Why didn't officials warn the citizens surrounding towns of a possible eruption, and why wasn't there an evacuation? If they were just 100 miles from the capital city, why didn't government officials send a helicopter with the help of rescue workers needed? 23,000 people died in the aftermath of the eruption. A photo taken by Frank Fournier is what I'm assuming. Fournier? Fournier? Yeah. Uh, Shows Amira. I think Fournier sounds good. Shows Amira three hours before she died. She has bloodshot eyes, white hands, dark circles under her eyes, and was surrounded by water. She's hanging on to a wood pole, probably a part of her home's roof. Frank supposedly waited six months after her death to publish the photo. Photo earned Frank the 1986 World Press Photo of the Year, but raised so many ethical questions. In an interview with BBC News, Frank said, Omira was in a large puddle, trapped from the waist down in concrete and other debris from the collapsed houses. She had been there for almost three days. Dawn was just breaking and the poor girl was in pain and confused. I could hear people screaming for help and then silence, an eerie silence. It was very haunting. When I took the pictures, I felt totally powerless in front of this little girl who was facing death with courage and dignity. She could sense that her life was going. I felt that the only thing I could do was to report properly and um, report properly the courage and the suffering and the dignity of the little girl. I felt I had to report what this little girl had gone through. Another newspaper said that rescuers tried mouth-to-mouth resuscitation after Omira passed out. As far as prevention and warnings about the eruption, there hadn't been any substantial explosions since 1845. But earthquakes shook the area for months before it erupted and killed Omira and 23,000 other people. 
A guerrilla group had raided the capital just days before, also hindering aid from the government that was available. Frank Fournier's photo of dying 13-year-old Omira brought attention and reform to the issues that killed her. In result to the powerful photo and story of Omira's death, Colombia now has disaster prevention and preparedness in place, and the town of Armero was moved out of the likely path of another volcano and mudslide. So maybe, you know, all he had to offer was his camera. And maybe yeah, because the story got out and the picture was so haunting, maybe that aided this ne- reform, you know? Yeah. So I have another soundbite or whatever from this the photographer. And right. then I wanted to tell you a couple stories from UK Daily Bible. Yes. <laughs> and I'll yes, tell yes. you my RIT about UK Daily Mail. Absolutely. So I could, I could hear people screaming for help and then silence, an eerie silence. It was very haunting. There were a few helicopters, some that had been loaned by an oil company, trying to rescue people. Then there was this little girl, and people were powerless to help her. The rescuers kept coming back to her, local farmers, and then some people who had some medical aid. They tried to comfort her. When I took the pictures, I felt totally powerless in front of this little girl who was facing death with courage and dignity. She could sense that her life was going. By this stage, Omira was drifting in and out of consciousness. She even asked me if I could take her to school because she worried that she'd be late. I gave my film to some photographers who were going back to the airport and had them shipped back to my agent in Paris. Omira died about three hours after I got there. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah, so he wasn't standing around for the three days just taking pictures. So he arrived right at the end and just thought, hey, this story needs to be told. Like, I don't understand. How did the guerrilla group prevent? Did they just completely damage the whole? I don't understand how that part fit in. Yeah. And a lot of times I thought like guerrillas groups, a lot of times I thought they were for the people. Right. You don't want to win over the people. Mm. I do want to tell you, though, there's a book. I I don't know if you're a big reader. Yes. But this book is 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 a good read. You won't be able to put it down. When you read it. You will look at Jean T from Marrying Millions. Yeah. You will look at her in such a different way. Right, right. Because we hear about what happened during World War II. Mm -hmm. We hear about what happens in North Korea, but no one ever talks about Pol Pot. Right, right. Which is what happened in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't want to say an easy read because it's a terrible read, but. Right, right. It's not a read where you feel like you have to be, it doesn't go it goes into what happened to the family not the politics right exactly you know so you actually feel it so the book is called and this is why as soon as she mentioned very briefly about her background of only having her mother and coming from that camp Mm -hmm. okay so from 1975 to 1979 through execution starvation disease and forced labor the Khmer Rouge systematically killed an estimated two million Cambodians almost a fourth of the country's population. This is a story of survival, my own and my family's. Though this event can constitute my experience, my story mirrors that of millions of Cambodians. If you had been living in Cambodia during this period, this would be your story too. So when you read this, no lie, you may cry, because targeted the educated of the country, and then they pushed them out, besides systematic executions, they pushed them out to the farms. Right. And they put them basically in these concentration camps and then routinely, like when her mother and her sibling was taken, they basically marched them with other William, William uh, women and children and just gunned them down and were put in mass graves. Like 
It's something we just don't hear about. And as soon as I made the connection when she was telling her story, right. I was like, oh my gosh, I basically read a story, a book by somebody else who shared a very similar experience. As ruler of Cambodia, Pol Pot was responsible for killing nearly two million people. That's a quarter of the country's population. In his four-year reign, Pol Pot tortured and starved the Cambodians to death. Men, women, children, and babies were often brutally clubbed to death with hammers and buried alive. He turned Cambodia into a killing field. When I first spoke with Pol Pot, he refused uh, to take responsibility uh, for an absolutely cataclysmic, catastrophic destruction of uh, innocent, uh, innocent people. By April 1975, Pol Pot's Khmer Rouge were in the capital, Phnom Penh. When Pol Pot and his army arrived in Phnom Penh, they immediately evacuated the entire population into the countryside. In what would be known as Year Zero, Pol Pot began to destroy and rip up Cambodian society, reducing it to a state of primitive barbarity. Two million Cambodians living in Phnom Penh were evacuated in 72 hours. Believing the city people to be contaminated by their past lives, Pol Pot would rewrite their histories. Money was banned, the Buddhist religion outlawed, and the country's name changed to Kampuchea. Then he dispersed the city people to peasant villages throughout Cambodia, where they would grow rice and build dams for the revolution. Here, in this idealized peasant state, he would purify them through hard labor and brutality. Little more than nameless, faceless slaves, the city people would literally be worked to death. You work 12 to 16 to 18 hours, working in the field, growing rice, harvesting rice, building dams. There's a lot of people um, do a lot of harsh work. I mean, people work. They work you um, until you drop dead. Fear and the threat of arbitrary, casual death was everywhere. At one point, I remember um, just working, and then they just walk up and just shoot the person in the head. You know, the guy just walk up and go boom. In fact, most of Pol Pot's victims were killed not by bullets, but beaten to death with blunt instruments. And. There was a, Jody and I did an episode once about creepy places. Mm -hmm. And one of them, because I didn't even know like Pol Pot, I didn't know, I only knew there was torture. I didn't know, but there's an area where you can go even as a tourist. And basically it's just a field of bones. Oh my God, that's awful. You just like are like walking on like, yeah, it's, so it's really, 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 really sad. Oh, I'll totally read it. Yeah. And when you read it, you're going to be like, oh, my gosh, John T., what an amazing American story. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'll totally read it. That'd be awesome. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. We can't do heavy episodes anymore. This is killing me. This is like, wow. Chill, darling. Still too early to go to Tiffany's. I guess the next best thing is a drink. I 
will never be the woman with the perfect hair who can wear white and not spill on it. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. It's me again, and you thought you probably had enough of my voice by now. Just a quick reminder to find us and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Miss Intrigue Pod. Follow us on Pinterest and Flipboard, where we collect featured stories from across the internet of royalty, chronicles of interesting events in history, and of course, true crime. Lastly, check out our YouTube channel because everyone has one, right? That features playlists of documentaries and other related segments from our podcast topics. And if you want to hit us up, check out MissDeedsAndIntriguePodcast.com. But we don't have a complaints department, just to give you a little heads up. The podcaster or authors assumes no responsibility or liability for any errors or omissions in the content of this podcast. The information contained on this podcast is an as-is basis with no guarantees of completeness, accuracy, usefulness, or timeliness. A reasonable amount of effort was made to deliver precise data. All views expressed by the podcast hosts or guest co-hosts are their own and do not necessarily represent the opinion of any entity whatsoever with which Carrie, Misdeeds, or Intrigue Podcast, or Larissa have been, am now, or will be affiliated. The content of this podcast is for personal, informational, and entertainment purposes only, and is not to be viewed for commercial use. Misdeeds and Intrigue Podcast respects the intellectual property of others. Any audio clips that were not generated by the podcast host or producer was pulled from the public domain, free use sites, and or from YouTube, or other authorized sites to gather information. The utmost effort was made to credit the author and or production. If at any time you feel that copyright was infringed, please email Carrie at misdeedsandintriguepodcast.com and immediate action will be taken to remove the audio clips that were present for entertainment purposes only.